0: This is a broadcast of Holland United Church of Christ. At Holland UCC, we seek to open the mind and engage the heart. We are a community of justice, peace and affirmation in Holland, Michigan, where everyone is welcome to the table.
1: Words of integration and guidance by Parker Palmer. The active life makes it possible for us to discover ourselves and our world, to test and extend our powers, to connect with other beings, to co-create a common reality. The joys of action are known to everyone who has done a job well, made something of beauty, given time and energy to a just cause. Take away the opportunity to work, to create, or to care, As our society does to many people, and you have deprived someone of a chance to feel fully human. But the act of life also carries a curse. Many of us know what it is to live lives not of action but of frenzy, to go from day to day exhausted and unfulfilled by our attempts to work, create, and care. Many of us know the violence of action of active life, a violence we sometimes inflict on ourselves and sometimes inflict on our world. In action, we project our spirits outside ourselves. Sometimes we project shadows which do damage to others. And sometimes we project light that others want to extinguish. Action poses some of our deepest spiritual crises, as well as some of our most heartfelt joys. A reading of scripture from Acts 1, verses 16 through 14. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, is this the time when you will restore the kingdom to Israel? He replied, it is not for you to know the times or periods that the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. When he had said this, as they were watching, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. While he was going, and they were gazing up toward heaven, suddenly two men in white robes stood by them. They said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up toward heaven? This Jesus, who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. When they had entered the city, they went to the room upstairs where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James son of Alphaeus and Simon the Zealot, and Judas son of James. All these were constantly devoting themselves to prayer, together with certain women, including Mary, the mother of Jesus, as well as his brothers. Hear what the Spirit is saying to the church.
0: Thanks be to God. The Holy Gospel according to John 17, 1 through 11. After Jesus had spoken these words... So now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had in your presence before the world existed. I have made your name known to those whom you gave me from the world. They were yours, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything you have given me is from you. For the words that you gave to me, I have given to them. And they have received them and know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. For the Word of God in Scripture, for the Word of God among us, for the Word of God within us. So, the question I'd like to ask this morning is how do we balance the inner and the outer life? Is it possible to be contemplative and active? Or, is the spiritual life at odds with a meaningful life out in the world? Does the life of an activist preclude things like prayer? Have you wondered or wrestled with that tension in your own life a bit? Maybe? Yes? (laughs) Me too. Me too. Uh, Father Daniel Berrigan, uh, the late writer, priest, poet, and activist, tells the story of his call to spend a semester in Canada teaching at the University of Manitoba back in 1973. He says at the outset, I'm often at odds with the departments, uh, the religion departments at universities and the same with seminaries. He says, I find these folks often far removed from the realities of life, fervently bent on extra- extrapolating favorite theories, but marvelously ignorant or indifferent to the plight of actual people. And of course, he's speaking as he's a priest in a parish setting, but also was a big time activist, often out in the street protesting doing things that are slightly illegal, and so on. And so he sees people in these academic departments as sort of living in ivory towers. Well, his experience as he shares it in Winnipeg at the university seemed to be such a case in point. He says, these eminent divines gathered from the four corners of the globe, held forth on the convergence and branchings of world symbols, ecstatic writings, moral code stories, Histories, mystic developments, all the things that comprise the rich history of the world tribe. Those sound like people I'd actually like to hang out with, you know, just gonna say. Sounds okay to me. But he says, as time passed, I grew less impressed with my peers. And a certain crisis that happened while he was there brings this to light. There was a strike on campus of the maintenance workers. Strike on campus. He says, One morning, without consulting the demands and appetites of our pampered nursery, some 2,000 workers laid down brooms, towels, buckets, mops, and other assorted insignia of servitude. Immediately the debris piled up, the toilets clogged, and we, he says, the darlings of the upper air, were in danger of drowning in our own garbage. Our servants and handmaids, Lined up as they went on strike, shivering in the icy weather, demanding something so outrageous as a living wage. Then he says, now it seemed to me that we had here something old-fashioned and simple. A religious issue. Well, conveniently, he's in the religion department. Or perhaps not conveniently. Berrigan says he moved off campus in solidarity with these workers and that he and some of his students endured the picket line with them, brought them food, coffee, supported them in ways that they could. He says, I also sought out my colleagues in the religious department to discover what might be done in and out of classes to raise the issue of the strike and support our brothers and sisters, the working people of the university. He says, I was met with the coldest shoulder ever raised in that arctic climate. Such matters as social injustice did not touch on their conception of religion. It was as simple as that, and as brutal. Indeed, if I read their eyes correctly, it was I who stood in need of instruction on the proper, proper functioning of the department, which in no case was to be conceived as a threshing floor for the rude affairs of the world. Wow. He writes eight years later in 1981, that year is long gone and undoubtedly the religious department of the University of Manitoba is the better for my absence. But a minority report is sometimes useful, at least to a minority. He says, and I hold to this day a bitter and vivid memory of the silence of quote-unquote religious experts when the rights of workers to bread and lodging and dignity were placed in question by a voracious consumer clan. Wow. A powerful and damning story of the power of religion to remove us from the affairs of the world. I read a story like that, and I think, forget contemplation, right? What we really need is action, right? People are hurting. We need to be out there. We need to be helping people. And yet, Berrigan, who, as we said, was a noted activist, arrested on a number of occasions, opens the book where he tells this story... He opens the book in a surprising way. He says that amid the violence and challenges that were happening in our society and in our country in the 1970s, people were asking him, what can we do? Where are we going? How can we become activists? And he says, I would reply, that that is not the question at all. Here's a better one. Can we uncover the contemplative springs that are the source of our humanity? Can we clear the waters of our soul that the streams may run free? It's kind of surprising after reading this story and then going back and reading the beginning. You think he'd kind of say, you know, enough. We've done enough contemplating. Let's get to what matters. Let's get stuff done. But he's noting that when we create space within, when we clear The inner life, when we connect to something deeper than ourselves, it may set the stage for meaningful action in the world. Meister Eckhart said, what we plant in the soil of contemplation, we shall reap in the harvest of action. What We plant in the soil of contemplation, we reap in the soil of action. So while these two things may appear at odds, the spiritual life or the contemplative life and the active life. I think they can actually be mutually supporting pursuits. Our text begins, After Jesus had spoken these words, he looked up to heaven. And then he begins to pray. Now this is happening moments before his arrest. On the night before his death. He's about to enter into his suffering. He's about to be tortured, brutally beaten, murdered. And before all of that happens... He's found in prayer. He needs to ground himself, center himself spiritually before he can walk the path that he's about to walk. In the text we read from Acts chapter 1, Jesus is taken from his disciples and ascends up to heaven. And we read that these disciples travel back to Jerusalem and kind of think about, well, what are we going to do now? Jesus isn't with us. How are we going to live the life that he called us to live? And we read that they, these disciples found themselves constantly in prayer. So both Jesus and the early church community led very active lives. Lives often lived on behalf of others. Lives that challenged prevailing systems. Lives that had no to injustice and yes to mercy and compassion. They opened their homes to one another and to the least among them. Yet Jesus and his followers also had vibrant spiritual lives. They made it a priority to cultivate their connection to God, to remain spiritually centered and grounded. Question, which of these in your experience does our society value more today? Contemplation or action? Action. We always have to be doing something. It's got to be be noise. It's got to be noise. Anyone second that or disagree? A couple nods. Do we all need some
1: coffee? (laughs)
0: Parker Palmer notes that a uh, tug-of-war has been happening between the active and the contemplative life for a long time in the Western world, and that there's sort of been pendulums between which society is sort of focused on or held in higher esteem. He says, in the ancient world, contemplation was generally valued more than action. Contemplation was valued more than action. For the ancients, Palmer writes, the active life was merely a way of meeting your material needs, right? A way of surviving, And if you were fortunate, you had someone else to do that active stuff for you, to help you do the things that helped you live, survive, etc. Contemplation, however, offered a chance at at transcendence, at union with the ideal or the divine. Plato's model person was the philosopher king who reigned over the model society, a society designed to support elites whose primary service would be thought and reflection. So that was what many saw as the ideal society, in which, yeah, some people did the the dirty work, the active work, but it was really to support the higher calling of contemplation. And he says that this reflects that Jesus reflects this ancient bias in his story, or in the encounter he has with Mary and Martha. Anybody remember what's happening in that story where Jesus is visiting with Mary and Martha? What's going on there? What's what are Mary and Martha doing? One's listening, one's working. Okay, one is listening, one is working. Right? Mary's sitting at Jesus' feet as he's teaching presumably. And Martha's doing stuff, right? Cooking, cleaning up, supporting what they're doing. Well, Jesus says that the reflective Mary has chosen the better part. I had a friend named Martha who said she always resented this story growing up. She's like, because every time we heard this story in church, Martha was always, you know, she did the worst thing. But she's like, but how are they going to, they wouldn't even be alive if they weren't eating food. So she's cooking, she's supporting what they're doing. What's wrong with Martha? Right? So Palmer says maybe this ancient bias is reflected in this story uh, that comes to us of Jesus with Mary and Martha. He also notes that the church and the university both rooted in this bias toward contemplation became the preeminent institutions of Western culture in a way because they valued this thing that was hard to do for the common person, right? They valued contemplation. They provided a unique place to do that in a time when mere survival was really what most people had to contend with. But at some point a shift begins to happen in modern society and you can imagine why this might be so. He says that the age of exploration, enlightenment, with the rise of science, the industrial revolution, and urbanization, the rope in this tug of war was pulled the other way, and the act of life became more valued than contemplation. He says the reason for this shift seems clear. With the tools of science and technology, people are able to act for purposes beyond mere survival. Right Today, many of us, not all of us, many of us, take survival for granted. Now, he says, we can use the tools of action to change the world. Action, not contemplation, becomes the pathway now to personal virtue, to social status, and he says, even to salvation for many modern men and women. He says, if you wonder which is valued more, think of the fear or the pride that comes upon you when someone you meet somebody new and they say, oh, what do you do? Right? And that's usually one of the first questions we ask people when we meet somebody new at a social gathering, at an event, at church, whatever. Oh, what do you do? And by that we mean, what do you do professionally? What do you do to earn money? What do you do... In that active sort of way and so we define ourselves today often by what we do often by what we do professionally well this little historical sketch was helpful to me uh, and of course he notes there are caveats and it's not a thorough study or any of that but that there are ebbs and flows in society and that where we find ourselves today in the broader whole might help us understand ourselves but also help to be reminded that these are not mutually exclusive endeavors and that they can indeed support each other. Parker Palmer says to be fully alive is to act and to be fully alive is to contemplate. To be fully alive is to act and to be fully alive is to contemplate. So I think a real question to ask ourselves is knowing ourselves, what am I like? How am I wired? Because I think each of us are sort of drawn, perhaps naturally, toward more of one than the other. Some of us are internally wired to act, to value action. Others more to contemplate, consider, analyze, seek the inner life. So if we did a quick poll, who of you feels yourself more pulled just naturally toward contemplation? I'd me. A few. In the middle, doesn't want to commit. Not going to say one or the other. That's good. That's good. And who feels that they're more pulled toward action? All right. That's a split crowd. Some of you raise your hand twice. I see you. That's good. That's good. Well, I found it helpful to pursue this sort of inner tendency that I have, uh, and I think some of you have as well through different personality tests, things that help you figure out yourself a little bit, whether it's Myers-Briggs, the Enneagram, Finders, the DISC personality test. Any of these can help us find what our proclivities might be on this thing and of course on many other things. If you're an S or a J on the Myers-Briggs, you might be more inclined to action, to practical matters, to getting things done. If you're an N or a P, you might be more inclined to analyzing the situation, getting the bigger picture, considering all the options, not quite ready to commit to any one thing because you're not quite sure you've figured out what the best thing is yet. But you can see why we need people on both ends of those scales, because we do need things to happen, but we also need people to say, is there a better way to make that thing happen? If you're a one or a two on the Enneagram, you might Be ready to act, right? Ready to change the world to make a difference. Come on, people. Let's get stuff done. If you're a five or a nine, for example, uh, you might prefer to sit on the couch to read up on what is happening, to go on a silent retreat or maybe on 10 silent retreats before making any decisions or taking action. And of course, these are all oversimplifications, right? But you get the idea. By the way, if you're interested in pursuing more on the Enneagram, a cousin of mine, uh, Casey Burkoff, who lives out in San Francisco, just wrote uh, really co-wrote a super helpful book called The Modern Enneagram, Discover Who You Are and Who You Can Be. I just started reading this on my Kindle. Uh, she didn't pay me to say this. But, <laughs> but I find it, it's very accessible, And she and I've read a few different things on the Enneagram, and she comes at it from a few different angles I hadn't seen. So there you go. Of course, the side note is if you're more of a contemplative-minded person, you might be more apt to read up on things to help you learn more about yourself, right? So I get that uh, there's that sort of quandary, too. It's like, hey, I could just read, keep reading about myself. How interesting, you know, and never come, up out of, never come up for air, you know? Guilty. But all that to say, I think it can be very helpful, right, to figure out how you're wired, And what it does for me is take away some of the potential shame, right? I tend to be, as I said, more contemplative by default, to value the inner life, to value learning and knowledge and taking the wider view. It's harder for me to kick into action or initiate action. Just ask my better half. True story. And I used to sort of beat myself up over this, you know, uh, thinking I need to do more, or I'm not enough, or I'm not good enough. But knowing some of how I'm wired helps. I say, okay, I sort of am bent that way, but it also helps me realize where I need to find balance. Or that, you know, if I just allow myself to go with the flow, I might just keep going one direction. It's good to have that awareness to say, oh, how might I need to balance that out or take some steps in this other direction. So I was going to have people share an example of someone who inspires you in this way, who you feel like that person balances being contemplative and active, or I think of that person as a contemplative activist. Is there somebody that comes to your mind that you want to share? Anne Lamott. Anne Lamott, okay. There you go. Yeah, Mother Teresa. Sorry, but not for actions, but yeah, because everybody has so many contemplative pieces too. Okay,
1: yeah.
0: Anything else come to your mind when you think about being a contemplative activist or an active contemplative? I think it went to your drawer,
1: Yeah, yeah. He inspires me.
0: Absolutely. Nelson Mandela. Nelson Mandela. Yeah, good. Good. Chelsea Manning. Excellent. And so, you know, we have people like this, right, that inspire us by how they live their lives, the things they do in the world, the way they embody what it is to be human and to live compassion. And I think it's also helpful to remember that titles like Contemplative Activist or Active Contemplative, they're not only reserved for the super-holy. Right or the super-special or the very accomplished. Right, It's not only Gandhi or Richard Rohr who can claim titles like this. Because these aspects of human life really can happen and unfold every day in our lives. Right? Very simple, down-to-earth, mundane ways. Parker Palmer says, Our contemplative action may be raising a child. Raising a child can be something that we do with intention in a contemplative way. Our contemplative action may be making things with wood. It may be delivering the mail. It may be managing a company, using a computer, volunteering to serve the hungry, protesting an injustice, writing a book. Any of those things might be contemplative action. And I like that he frames it as contemplative action, not just action. And then he says, and our active contemplation may involve staring out the window. Sometimes we think, well, the inner life, that has to be about reading the Bible or doing a devotional or something very specific. But he says, our active contemplation may simply be staring out the window when there's a siren or an interesting pedestrian. It may be reading a book, it may be simply thinking long and hard. He says it also might be grieving a painful loss. Any of those things can be a contemplative pursuit. And so whatever our action, it can help express our souls, and it can shape the world we live in. And whatever our contemplation, it can help us see the reality behind the veils. Contemplation helps us see the world as it actually is. And these aren't skills or specialties just for the very few. They're the interwoven threads that form the fabric of who we are and who we are becoming. In our two passages today, Jesus and the disciples are facing difficult moments, challenging transitions. And both prepare for such moments with prayer. Turning inward and turning to God. Jesus, in his prayer in John 17, says, "...This is eternal life, that they may know you, the one true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent." Now, setting aside that Jesus is speaking about himself in the third person while he's talking to God, that, you know, seems a little awkward. But setting that aside, I find this a very helpful definition of eternal life. Sometimes we assume that the point of faith is to gain eternal life, and we assume that eternal life simply means going to heaven after we die. But Jesus says it, defines it much simpler, as knowing God and knowing Jesus. Eternal life, knowing God and knowing Jesus. So if we know Jesus, we know someone who is deeply connected to God and someone who is deeply active in the world, someone who was a contemplative and was an activist. And later in his prayer, he says, Now I am no longer in the world, but they, that is his followers, are in the world. That was true for his disciples after Jesus' ascension. And that's true for you and I today. We are, of course, in the world. We are to be those who find life by knowing God and knowing Jesus. We're invited to ground ourselves in God, the source of all life and compassion. And we're invited to do what Jesus would do. In fact, we are the way Jesus remains active in the world today. Teresa of Avila put it beautifully. Christ has no body now but yours. No hands, no feet on earth but yours. Yours are the eyes through which he looks compassion out in the world. Yours are the feet with which he walks to do good. Yours are the hands through which He blesses all the world. Yours are the hands, yours are the feet, yours are the eyes. You are His body. Christ has no body now on earth but yours. Or as it says elsewhere in the Bible, If a brother or sister is naked and lacks daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm, and eat your fill, and yet you do not supply their bodily needs, what is the use of that? So contemplation by itself, if it has no action, is dead. Amen and namaste. And now, as you go from this place, may you remember that the world is too beautiful to be praised by only one voice, and so may you have the courage to sing your song. May you remember that the world is too broken to be healed by only one set of hands, and so may you have the courage to use your gifts. And as you go, may the light of God shine upon you, and in you, and through you. Amen. And go in peace. Invited to join us for worship on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. at the Holland Area Arts Council in downtown Holland. And for more information, how to get involved or to support our work, like us on Facebook or visit hollanducc.org.